for every uh, project we do, art project, we have a series of talks. And part of the context uh, is also that we link up with the Writers' Festival every year. And I choose the person every year. I read the books. I read three or four books and I chose uh, Rob's book. I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. And then I did what I thought was, I had a clever, what I thought was a clever idea, and I invited Jeremy Barme, who is one of the world's great sinologists, not just one of Australia's great sinologists, who's now, he hasn't been well, he's living in New Zealand, and up until yesterday he was coming. And then he he's just, he's now just got a cold, but because his health isn't good, the you know, he he didn't want to travel and his doctor said no. So I'm going to, uh, in, I've got uh, Jeremy's words in front of me, but I thought it would be too boring for you, for me just to read out his wonderful questions. So I'm going to read out some of them and extrapolate, but I just want to read his apology, uh, Rob. He said, Jean, please apologise on my behalf to Rob Schmitz and to the audience for my regrettable absence. Over many years, I've been honoured to participate, first in the Sherman Galleries and then in the SCAF activities at your kind invitation, blah, 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 about the gallery. I'm not going to read that part. I'm very disappointed that illness has prevented me from travelling to Sydney and in particular, as I will miss the opportunity to meet Rob Schmitz. Have you not met Rob? No, not, we've, we've not, not in met person. And it's funny, he's one of the few sinologists that I, I, I cite in, in, in my book. Yeah. Um, he says he, thank you for that in yeah, his notes. Yeah, actually, yes. I you know, named him in the book. <laughs> he yeah, says yeah. so. So he was particularly disappointed at not meeting you. He says to discuss the book, uh, a work that is wonderfully engaging and that provides such an approachable and thoughtful perspective on China today and particularly Shanghai, a city where I first lived in 1975. That's during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable thing that he was in Shanghai in 1975 as a student and which has been part of my life and my research ever since. So now that's uh, so that's. Uh, well, Gene, you just made my day. Uh, that was, that's uh, <laughs> he, to be to be you know to be yeah, praised by praised. him. Is, uh, yes, he's God. a he's yeah, an yeah, internationally he's acclaimed sinologist, and uh, he he obviously loved the book. How many people? And don't feel this is an exam because people come to the Writers Festival and haven't read the books. We can't read everything, but I know there's at least Louise. You've read the book. I've read the book. So there are two of us. Anybody else here? Three, Andrew, have you read? No. Who else has read it? Oh, there are two people at the back there who've read it. Thank you for reading so, but it. But it's yeah. good also yeah. that we know because we need yeah. them no, to I, extrapolate. Yeah, no, I like to know this as well. Uh, yes, yeah. we extrapolate. So now I'm going to, I'm not reading out. Jeremy's written very long, complex questions, which will take too long for me to read. But I will um, just, uh, I've, I've sort of paraphrased them into my short less erudite words, and uh, here are uh, some people. Please come and sit in front. There's, uh, there are chairs here. Um, and these are, are they. Uh, Rob, uh, you first arrived in China as a volunteer for the Peace Corps in 1996, and uh, you then uh, went away and came back um, seven years ago. And uh, Jeremy's question, I suppose, is... Um, uh, give us your ground overview. How has the tenor of life changed in China since over that period? And how long were you? Uh, did you spend in China in '96? Yeah. Well. Well. First of all, Jean, thank you very much for having me here, and, and thanks to all of you for for coming here on a Saturday uh, to to listen to this, and um, and thanks for hosting me here at the festival. I, I really appreciate that. Um, so in 1996, I was uh, 23 years old. I had just graduated uh, from college uh, with a Spanish literature degree. And um, I joined, I'd always wanted to join the, the Peace Corps, a uh, volunteer organization run by the U.S. government. Um, I wanted to, to just kind of, before I got a full-time job, I wanted to sort of you know, work in a developing country. I fully thought that they would send me to South America or Central America because I spoke Spanish. Um, and that's what I made very clear on the application. And, and, and when my recruiter called me to, to let me know that I was in, he said, well, we're sending you to China. And uh, 
it, it was the first time I thought about China. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I, it was a volunteer organization. I didn't want to be picky. So I said, okay, I'll go to China. And um, so I had to learn uh, another much more difficult language. Um, and so in 96, when I arrived to China, China uh, was especially where I was sent. I was sent to Sichuan province uh, in the southwest of the country. And I was living in a place called Zugong. Zugong at the time was a city that had been closed off to foreigners up until I arrived there, uh, my, my sidemates and I, um, it, meaning that no foreigners could even visit uh, without a special permit. And um, they had finally opened it, and we were the first foreigners to, to live in Zugong uh, since before 1949, uh, for, before the revolution. And so our presence there was um, very sensitive to the university that hosted us because we were teachers. Um, but it was, it was bizarre. It, it was like living in a, in, in a dream in some ways because my, my, my first, I'll always remember my first morning in Zugong. They, they put us uh, into these garden-level apartments. And uh, my first morning, I, I, I opened the drapes and uh, there were around a dozen children holding onto the bars of my window, waiting for the foreigner to open his drapes so they could see a foreigner. And you know, I opened the drapes. They screamed at me, screaming, Laowai, Laowai, foreigner, foreigner. And I, I screamed as well because I was so shocked. And, and you know, thank God I was wearing clothes. Uh, <laughs> so it, it was that set the tone uh, for the next two years. Uh, everywhere I went in Zagong, uh, I became the event. Because at that time, China's economy was in transition. It was... It's very similar, actually, to what's going on today in China. Um, it was moving from everything that was state-owned to, uh, at the time, Premier Zhu Rongji had uh, helped construct this privatization that was taking over the country. And so Zugong had all of these state industries that um, suddenly were, uh, were, were, were privatized or they were, they were completely shut down. And so at that time, and you would never have seen this now in, in China, but you would see unemployed men hanging out on the street, you know, in their Mao suits at the time, just, just really doing nothing. And so when I walked around, you know, I became the focal point for everyone's attention. I mean, I, I, would, I would buy vegetables on the street. Were and, you on your own? Or was uh, no. I was with two site mates, but they were married. And so, yeah, I was basically alone because I didn't really want to be a third wheel constantly. And I also wanted to have my own experience. And um, I wanted to get to know the language. And so I felt like I needed to meet people. And that was difficult because the college had told the, the English students that we were teaching not to talk to us after class because they said, you know, they'll fill you with these dirty Western ideas. And, and so they were instructed not to, not to talk to us. And these were the only people in the city that we would be able to communicate with because uh, we didn't speak Chinese very well and, and um, you know, no one else even spoke Mandarin. I mean, this is, this is in, in rural Sichuan, so they spoke Sichuanese. Did you uh, do a crash course before you left? Yeah, so, so as, a, as Peace Corps volunteers, there were 13 people in our group, um, and, and so they immediately, in the capital city, the, the Sichuanese capital of Chengdu, they had us take uh, these, these really intensive Mandarin courses where it was eight hours a day, six days a week, um, yeah, for two months. And, uh, and then after that, they spit us out into all these different sites. And, um, you know, th th that was enough to get us to a level where we could maybe, you know, bargain for vegetables at the market. No. And, and barely that, <laughs> because uh, uh, Chinese, you know, with its tones is, is extremely difficult for adults, uh, foreigner adults to learn. And, you know, as, as a father of two sons who are now in the Chinese education system, uh, watching them, I just get so jealous because children just soak it up and they can, they can immediately know the tones and they can just immediately learn everything. It's a different thing, as we all know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and, and, you know, my kids constantly correct my tones when I'm speaking Chinese and it's just, uh, and I love it. I think it's great. But, uh, it's wonderful that uh, they've had this yeah, opportunity. Yeah, yeah, so. Rob, I want to ask you, so you were there for two years on the Peace Corps and then did you go home? So yeah, I was there for two years. I went home. I'm from a small town in Minnesota, um, 
I, I began teaching Spanish, which was basically the only thing I could do uh, that I was I was really you know kind of trained All the for. to do, mm. <clears throat> and I didn't do very well at it because I had gone from as a culture shock. I'd gone from teaching amazing Chinese students who wanted to learn and uh, you know were were really eager to learn from a foreigner to inner city kids in St. Paul, Minnesota that absolutely did not want to learn Spanish. And, and it, was, it was hard for me as a young man to, to figure that out. And, I, and they, didn't, you know, they didn't deserve me. Or I, I mean, not, 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 I didn't mean saying that. They, basically, I was a terrible teacher. Uh, and and, and I, I, you know, I had just come from China. I wasn't really thinking about Spanish. I was only doing this really for money. And then I, I quit and I went back to China because I, I felt like uh, you know, my heart was there. And I felt like what I wanted to do was there and what I wanted to do was right. So I started writing. Uh, so I, in 99, 2000, I started, uh, I went back to Chengdu. And a lot of the guys in our group, you know, we had, we had five women, seven guys, no, eight guys. Um, a lot of the men in our group ended up uh, being journalists. So we have Peter Hessler. Uh, some of you might know Peter. Yes. Uh, he's, he was in my group of the Peace Corps. Um, uh, Michael Meyer. Uh, he's also a China writer. He was in the group before us. Uh, Craig Simons, who became a journalist later on for for uh, many news organizations, Newsweek included, was was with us as well. And so, um, when did you make your way back then? So um, I, I lived in in uh, Chengdu as a as a freelance journalist for about a year, uh, and I worked for this online magazine run by Kaiser Kuo, who became I, if if you know China, you know Kaiser because Kaiser started the first heavy metal band in China, um, and became the international spokesman for Baidu, and now um, has a, a podcast that's very popular among those who who care about China. And uh, but then I came back and I, I I went to graduate school at Columbia University uh, and and learned how to Journalism. properly become a journalist. Yes. And then I, <clears throat> I switched over to broadcast. I met my wife at Columbia, mm-hmm. uh, Lenora Chu, who's a Chinese American, and mm. um, we sort of traveled around the U.S. Uh, doing early journalism. And then when I got a job offer to go back to China, uh, the place where Lenora's uh, mother and father escaped, uh, she was. <laughs> She was sort of on the fence, and I was like, I, I really want to go back. I really want to go back. Will you go with me? And Had she, she been? She had been, been but, but, you know, as, as any... Ch- I mean, she was born in America, yes. and, and this was a place that, you know, she grew up hearing horror stories about this place. Her, her grandparents were, would have been executed had they stayed there. You know, one was a, with the Guomindang, and one was a, basically the richest person in, in Shanghaiguan, oh which is the, the, final, uh, the final city on the Great Wall on the, on the, on the coast. Um, yeah, they, they would have been killed. No chance they would have been killed. No, no, no they would have been killed. And so they left. Uh, and so th- she had heard all these horrible stories about the communists. Um, and uh, so she thankfully came with me, dropped everything, came with me. And so we've been there for seven years now. Seven years now. All right, let me uh, go back to Jeremy. Uh, he wants to ask, and I've uh, paraphrased uh, his beautifully written sentence. Uh, that uh, since uh, Xi Jinping's come into power, uh, have you seen changes? Uh, I mean, has it been noticeable? The How long has he been in power? They five are, years. Five years. Yeah. So you were there two years and then he came into power. Yeah. And has ha, have things noticeably changed? Some. Some. He's... he's um, the atmosphere in China has changed considerably in the sense that, you know, Xi Jinping, when he came to power, um, first of all, his predecessor, Hu Jintao, was not a well-loved man inside of China. And he, in his 10-year term of office, he presided over probably the largest growth that China has ever seen. That the world has ever seen. The world that actually in in world history has ever seen. Uh, But with all that growth came an incredible amount of corruption and, uh, and no accountability really, and no effort to really account for the money that was, uh, well, so it, this kind of goes back to the, the financial crisis in the United States. That's in kind of what started in 2008. Yeah. Yeah. In 2009, China, as a, re, as a result of this, because so many people were being laid off in China, um, China uh, basically put so much money into its system. A lot of that money was stolen. Uh, by corrupt officials. And it became, so 
I arrived in 2010 as this was happening. Mm. And you could just, everyone was on the make. And, you know, wherever I traveled, it was clear uh, that, you know, you had developers, local officials uh, that were sending, you know, starting to send their kids abroad, starting to send their money abroad, uh, stealing, basically stealing mm. money uh, left and right. And I saw the beginnings of this. Um, and I think there, something needed to happen. And I think Xi Jinping wisely uh, began this uh, campaign uh, to try and stamp out corruption. And this campaign uh, is talked about quite a bit. A lot of uh, academics and journalists uh, say that this campaign is, is a way that Xi Jinping is getting even with his enemies in Beijing. Yes. Um, and that, that isn't false. That certainly is the case in some cases. But I also think that the extent of this campaign... Uh, tells me that this is the real thing. He's not. He's really trying to stamp out corruption. Um, I'm well, not that's sure. Very good to hear. Well, mm, isn't I'm it? Not, yeah. I'm not sure if he's going to do it because you know I think that corruption in China is is is, is has kind of seeped into every facet of society in many ways. And this is a, you know, this is a societal problem. It's not just a party problem. And to try and stamp this out, I guess, from the party at first, I think that makes sense. But I'm not sure where this is going to lead. And I also think that, um, you know, he's made so many enemies, Xi Jinping has, within the party by, by you know, disciplining hundreds of thousands of officials that I often wonder, um, will we see an end to his power? I mean, will he give up power. Will he survive? Well, I think he will survive at this stage, but my my one question is in 5 years by tradition mm. he will step hopefully yeah. will step down. Mm. Well, it's it's this This has not been written down. You don't need to, to step down after 10 years, but this has been a tradition since Deng Xiaoping, right? We'll, we'll come to the... And, 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 and so yes. my, my big question Mania. is in, in 2022, uh, you know, when they have uh, the... That would be the, the 20th Party Congress. Will, will he actually uh, give up power? Um, a lot of folks that I know in Beijing think that he will not and he will find a way to to stay in power or at least to stay behind the scenes like putin did huh yeah mm. and and so that's what i i i am scared of that because I, if if that were to happen uh, i i don't think that that's a good thing and i don't think that many uh, in the chinese elite uh, think that would be a good thing no. either. Yeah. Uh, coming back to full power and power corrupts, even if you're trying to stamp out corruption, power corrupts. But I want to go back to the more domestic because for those of you who haven't read the book, it's about one little street. It's just about one tiny little street, a hutong, uh, in Shanghai in what was the French concession. I've been to the French concession many times. <coughs> I was there in November last year, but I, I don't remember the street. I can't read Chinese mm -hmm. and I have no sense of where the street was. But uh, it's one little street and it has a whole lot of people living in it, from a florist, who is my favourite character in the whole book, to um, a person who's an expert in making musical instruments but wants to run a sandwich shop for some odd reason and is not being terribly successful, to, um, uh, you know, people who have uh, suffered beyond belief uh, in the far northwestern part of China, trying to build cities out of sand, to uh, somebody, uh, people who are seeking religion, and um, this is what I've got out of the book, Rob, uh, and who end up with a monk who must have be as far removed from my idea of a religious person as anyone could be. And Rob made friends with all these people, but not friends almost he became like family. So one of Jeremy's questions, but it would have been one of mine, is did anybody say, no, I don't want to tell you about, yeah. you know, all the, my private life? So, so this, just to give you some background of this book, this book started as a radio series that I wanted to do 
after living in, in as a correspondent for two years. So in 20, actually, actually even after a year, I had had a year of, you know, this running around China trying to cover its economy. And it was only me that was the correspondent for this program called Marketplace. It's an economics program covering an enormous economy of 1.3 billion people. And the economy was, of course, going gangbusters in 2010, 2011 because of all of this money in the system and liquidity. And here I was trying to cover all this, make sense of this. And so what I wanted to do, and I shared this thought with my executive producer of the show, I said, I want to slow down because I think we're in a very interesting time in China and I want to focus on the individual. And I think what we should do, this is my idea, I'm going to, on my street that I live on, which in, in Chinese is called Changlulu, which is a long happiness road and we call it the street of eternal happiness for the, for the series, yes. That I, I want for every month out of the next year, I want to profile one person who lives or works along this street and, and tell their story and uh, we're doing that, we can hope to have some sort of um, perspective on China and give our listeners some real uh, people that they can relate to rather than hearing all these stories that you could read or hear anywhere else. You know, and, and I felt like this would be a distinguishing quality. It worked really and it well. Is. And yes, it, yeah, it, it worked is. pretty well. And, and so I, I then ended up focusing on um, five individuals for the book. So there are five main narratives in this book. Uh, five different characters, really, that or sets of characters that that I focus on through the book. Now, when I started to write the book, go from reporting the series to writing the book, I had a conversation with all my characters about that. Most of them said, separately. Separately, and mm. most of them said yes. Uh, there were a few that said no. Uh, there was a gentleman who had a, a clothing shop on the street. And um, he's a fascinating man. He had this is one of the clothing shops on the street that actually was doing well. Um, he's brilliant, and um, he was gay. And uh, I was I was very interested in his story. His story was fascinating, and he talked a lot about uh, you know his parents and his parents trying to come to terms with this. But the interesting thing about him is that he had a sister who was incredibly incredibly uh, protective of him, who would sit outside his his store with her husband, and they would just sit on chairs like this all day, sort of watching the store, kind of looming over her brother and sort of watching what was happening. And you know, when I, when I asked him about the book, I thought, oh, she's definitely going to be weighing in on this, I'm sure. But she was one of the, she was one of the interesting aspects of the story, I thought. I thought this would be a real interesting narrative with, with a sister who was sort of overbearing. But what was she doing there? What was she hoping to achieve? Uh, and, and did he want her there? <laughs> In China, you live with this. You know, this yeah. is your family. You're not really going to, you know, it's it's you know, it's a Chinese thing. You you're not you can't say no to your family. You know, you just this is the reality. And your sister's there. You're just going to have to deal with it. And and so, and 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 because because okay. of this relationship, because of this relationship uh, that he had with his sister, his sister immediately heard of the book and she said, "No way. You're not you're not writing a." He's not being a character in your book, you know. And, and he told me she's she's embarrassed by my sexuality. And I said, oh, yeah, I yeah, okay. Uh, she thinks it brings shame on the family. I see. There, so that yeah, was a no. That was a no. Uh, there was another character who uh, there's a park on the eastern end of the street um, that I would hang out with, and a lot of, of course, like any park in in China, at five in the morning, you know, mostly elderly people doing. They're Tai Chi, dancing, whatever. And there was this sort of, the king of this park or the emperor of this park was this older gentleman in his 80s who was a Kung Fu master. And he was just a riot, a hell of a character. But he too had somebody, his, his daughter, who was incredibly... Uh, protective of him and uh, when I started to ask him if he could be in my book uh, she uh, put the kibosh on that yeah one of Jeremy's questions which comes up later but I think it relates to this is that I mean has the book had uh, what's the what has the impact of the book been on the people who did share their stories as far as you can tell Rob I don't know if you yeah, know yes um, I was just—we were just talking about this previously. So, so the the book hasn't uh, been released in Chinese. It hasn't. No, no, not yet. Um, but it will be. 
Um, it's it's in, in it's in the works. Yeah, yes. yeah. And so uh, right now, a Chinese publisher, one of the largest Chinese publishers, is finishing the translation. I'm actually going through the whole thing uh, with a couple of other uh, assistants on 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 the final the, the final manuscript of it. Um, and I'm I'm really looking forward to it being being released in Chinese so that they can read it, but also to share it with with just mainland Chinese who who, who want to read it in Chinese. Um, so the only one that um, has been able to read it in English was C.K., the the youngest character in the book who, who can speak goes English. to the monk. Yes. 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 The one yes. who's seeking religion and yeah. um, and he's he really enjoyed it. He thought it was fair, even though. Um, I deeply criticized his master in the book. And you so criticized yeah, him. I did. That's and I, I had that conversation <laughs> with him too. Oh um, my God. Well, his master, his, his master is... No, he was shocking the way you presented him. Yeah. I mean, there was a woman, uh, talk a little bit, Rob, about that. Uh, he's seeking religion. He's got the sandwich shop that is, you know, no one likes sandwiches, so it's not been uh, doing terribly well. He's um, a, an absolute uh, genius at making accordions or what? He's an engineer. He? Yeah. He's an engineer, so he's got a very good profession and he's making money out of it. And he feels something's missing, as a lot of people do. Do, and he's seeking some spiritual content in his life and he goes off uh, on a pilgrimage and poor Rob is dragged along uh, up hills and down dales across bumpy roads and ends up in this monastery and all these people are trying to um, you know uh, speak to the master and the monk and tell them him their troubles and now I want you to take over and there's one young woman with an autistic child yeah mm. and so I noticed that when when I when I arrived to this temple, which took all day to get there, first of all, this temple was in a small village. None of the worshippers at this temple were from that village. It was an illegal temple, okay, so it was off the books. Um, all of the worshippers came straight from Shanghai, you know, six or seven hours away, which I thought was very odd. This was not part of the community that it was, it was in. And, and that was the first thing that sort of struck me, is that all of the worshippers were from the big city. The other thing that was interesting was that when I first arrived, a lot of the people that we were on the bus with were, were not like CK. They were not young. They were not in their 30s. They were, they were older people or they had children. Um, there were people that had medical problems. And when we arrived, it, certainly, it quickly became apparent that this, this monk who uh, I describe in the book as some, basically if he didn't have his robes on, he would look like a thug. Um, he, he looked, I mean, he was a very big man, uh, very aggressive, very charismatic, very humorous, uh, someone who could really draw you in and funny. I, th I found him very funny as well, but he gave the Buddhist equivalent of a sermon to his followers in which he um, would go to you know, some of his worshipers and ask them how their health was. And there was a woman with an autistic daughter there, and she was clearly uh, autistic. Um, she was she, very distressed. The woman and the child was and, clearly autistic. And the child was suffering. Uh, yeah. could, I mean, or the, the child was, you know, was was, you know, doing things that were erratic, and of course, you know, you know, kind of blurting out things, you know, randomly, uh, you know. And 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 I talked to her mother on the bus ride over, and she had told me that she had taken her to. Uh, the best, the, two of the best hospitals in China, one in Beijing, one in Shanghai, where they both uh, diagnosed the, the girl with autism. And uh, she was taking, I think, some medication for it. And, 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 the, and the, um, the, the master said, you know, that's, that's Western and that you, you, you need to listen to me. All you need to do is to hike around Mount Puto, Puto Shan, uh, which is a holy mountain, a holy Buddhist mountain in China. Um, a certain number of times, and you will see her get better. And that's when I started thinking, oh God, you know, oh geez. And, 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 and then it, be, it got worse and worse. And in the book, I describe this scene where um, he's, you know, there's a woman who cannot have children or is having a hard time having children. He, he does the same sort of prescription to her, saying, You should have listened to me. I told you to, to, to recite the, into these sutras this many times. And, you know, I had this conversation with CK after, and CK was not, CK is not, does not have any health problems, first of all. And, and CK was there, and, and this in some ways is a hallmark of every single character in my book, is that. 
CK was there to get something very specific out of the situation. Um, even though this master was sort of a shyster and was sort of, I think, you know, obviously scamming people, he also under, he also was a very learned man in Buddhism. I mean, this this man, he was, you know, he was a proper Buddhist monk, and CK was learning quite a bit from him. And CK was basically getting what he could from the situation to try to improve himself. And when I talked to him about that situation, uh, because I said I felt really uncomfortable mm-hmm. with that, and he said, "Yeah, he's he's not a doctor." <laughs> I said, "No, clearly not." <laughs> and I said, "I said you don't have a problem with that." He said, "Look." I'm getting what I'm getting out of that. I said, I, I don't see. think they're going to get much out of it. But he said, you can write whatever you want about him. Yes. I said, but uh, just don't, don't talk about where this is because I don't want you to get him in I trouble. I see. And, and I so didn't. that's what yeah. was that. I yeah. found that's, that story totally astonishing. I, I do. Of, of all the stories, that was the one that troubled me most. And I think it was because a highly educated man was... Uh, embracing a profession that any person in the street could have done, not succeeding, and then going off to a charlatan who was being cruel to people and taking something out of it. And I thought of all the characters in the book that I felt I could relate to in some way, I couldn't relate to him. And it, it was interesting, you know, I didn't set out, when I set out to write this book, I, I didn't have any agenda. I just thought I would hang out with these folks and see what came. Um, but religion became a big part of the book. Um, and this is not the only religious episode in this book. Another episode happens with another character named Auntie Fu, uh, who's married to Uncle Fung, who sells scallion pancakes out of his kitchen window. And they're in their 60s. And Auntie Fu, uh, he sells scallion pancakes, tonyobing uh, in Chinese. And um, what she does is she invests her pension money into pyramid schemes. God, this woman wastes every penny. And it's, but- it's fairly hopeless. I mean, she, so she's falling victim to what is actually a very large industry in China today, which is uh, these pyramid schemes that prey on elderly people who do not have the means to connect to the internet or to have a smartphone. And so I was then suddenly in this new world of seniors who would spend their days going from one investment meeting to another um, sort of scamming each other in a way because it's a pyramid scheme. They're, they're selling stuff as well, right? And, and so in the book, I, I describe a couple of these schemes and a couple of these meetings, which are pretty interesting. One is, one is pretty racy. But, uh, but, but the, the, uh, going back to religion, Auntie Fu is also being taken in by a preacher of an underground church, an unsanctioned uh, Christian church uh, in Shanghai, where the preachers that show up each week all have a very similar story about learning the Bible at when they were in prison as a, a mob boss uh, and memorizing the entire Bible. And, 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 you know, they have these fantastical stories that, that just seem ridiculous. And, and, and so there's an entire scene in the book of Preacher Jiang who is this man who wears a fake Rolex and he's got a leather coat and he's got all the symbols of, of Talk wealth. Talk about thugs. <laughs> And he, his, the sermon lasts a couple of hours, and I was just, I was amazed by this man. Just like the Shufu, just like the master, the Buddhist master, this man was big. He was extremely humorous. He was very charismatic, and he had this amazing story of being in the Heishihui, which is the sort of the, it's called black society, or the, you know, like basically the triads. And, and then being imprisoned and learning the Bible in prison. Uh, his father was a, a corrupt official and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I just, when I was watching him, I thought, well, how many preacher Jongs are out there preaching right now as part of this big church network? And his whole modus operandi that day was to convince everyone in the crowd to give 10% of their salary then and there uh, to, to him uh, because uh, if they didn't, uh, they were stealing from God, which is what, 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 what the end of his speech was. If you do not do this, you are stealing from God. And, and immediately, sorry? Yeah, but. No, I mean, no, that, I mean, that's tithing, right? But, 
well, how he was doing it was a little different. He was he was demanding people pay right then and yeah. there, and and it was it was you know. But what the point that I'm getting to here is that um, I did not anticipate this. But what's happening right now is very interesting in China because you're having a revival. Um, there's a revival of religion and spirituality um, after thirty uh, years of unprecedented growth. Um, you have a lot of folks in China um, who really are looking for something bigger than themselves. They're looking for a moral system that they can believe in um, that the party has not given them. Um, they're surrounded uh, by greed and corruption, and they're looking for something pure. And they do not have a, uh, at this stage because th these, have, these traditions have been sort of wiped out during the Cultural Revolution and during Mao years. Uh, a, a, a sophistication with religion that we might have in the West, and so when you have these. You know, it's interesting that both religious episodes that I came in contact with when 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 reporting this book were both scams. Mm. You know, and so you know this is a this is a ripe environment okay. for taking advantage of people, and, and I see that quite a bit, and it's very very interesting to me. But what's also interesting is that you've got uh, tens, if not hundreds, of millions of Chinese who are now turning to religion as an answer for their lives. And I found that also equally fascinating. And actually, Christianity is the fastest uh, growing religion in China right now. I want to segue from what you're saying into one of Jeremy's, I think, perhaps more arcane, but in some ways uh, more interesting questions. And this is a question that um, affects everybody in the globalized world. There was an article in this uh, Saturday's uh, Financial Times, London Financial Times, about Chris Durkon. Uh, Andrew, and how he's hated in Berlin now because he's globalising. He was a curator head of Tate Modern, a Belgian guy, and we got to know a bit in Australia, and he's gone to this venerable old German theatre in Berlin, and, you know, he wants to global. It's all in German, and it's seven hours, the productions, and it's all terribly serious, and he wants to globalise the thing and bring the world in, and they are accusing him of I don't know, raping the city just about. So Jeremy's question here is uh, with this sort of uh, one-size-fits-all um, feeling in China, which obviously emanates from Beijing and everybody needs to follow the same pattern, has, uh, in your opinion, have, have the, how has he put it, the Shanghainese, the local culture, to what extent is it under pressure, the uh, Shanghainese culture, the, their way of living, because it's always been a bit separate. No, it's becoming it, extinct. I mean, I, you know, extinct. Shanghai is becoming a different place. Yes. You know, Shanghai is now almost 50% non-Shanghainese. Um, when you look at people who have hukou, which are ho the household registration for Shanghai, meaning that, you know, and this is an issue that I, I bring forth in the book because Zhao Shiling, the, the flower lady, um, does not have hukou for Shanghai, which is she does not register to live there. So, household, so hukou in, in, in Chinese means household registration. And it's an, basically it's an internal passport system in China. If you... Uh, wherever your ancestral village is, is where what is written on your hukou. It's a document. And um, this is an incredibly important piece of, uh, you know, this is, this is your, it really, it, for, for, if you want to take the, for example, if you want to go to college, you have to go to high school wherever your hukou belongs to. Um, so you, if, if, even if you grow up in Shanghai and you do not have Shanghai hukou, which you know, applies to a lot of children, um, they have to return back to their home village uh, to take to go to high school and then take the national college entrance examination, which is an extremely difficult test to get into college. Um, if you want a specialized medical procedure done, you also uh, at times have to go back uh, to where your hukou belongs. Um, it has been compared to by sociologists, Chinese sociologists, as an apartheid system. Well, it was. I <clears throat> grew up in South Africa. We yeah. did, and it was exactly that. Yeah. You had to go back to where. You, your village, and your village had nothing there. Yep. So there was no point yeah, in going and it, back. And it, it ruins lives in China. It ruins lives. So, so, um, so it creates this entire underclass of people who are not urban Chinese who are immediately just at a disadvantage. 
Um, these are people that could become productive consumers. They could become, uh, you know, good workers, but they, they're constantly held back because of where their hukou belongs. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping is actually trying to reform the system, but there's been a lot of resistance uh, among the largest cities of China, especially Shanghai, uh, that do not want to reform the system, primarily because they believe that if the system goes away, uh, you will have a flood of migrants coming into the cities and you'll have a shantytown effect that you would see, for example, in Brazil or, or other developing countries. So it's a big issue uh, in China. And when you ask the Chinese, like, what are some of the biggest issues in your country? They do not talk about internet censorship. They do not talk about democracy. They don't talk about all these things that Westerners apply to China. They talk about hukou. That is a, it's a, it's, it's a big, big problem in China. So, um, what was the question? I, 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 I think I, 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 because I got so worked up about Hukou. No, I, I know, because it's, I didn't know about it. What was the question again? I totally forgot the question. It was about the, you know, to what extent does the culture, yeah. uh, the localized culture, the, oh, to what yeah. extent does it cling on? So yeah. I think you know, the Shanghainese that I know, uh, first of all, Shanghai is a, a very interesting city. It, 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 you know, Shanghai was sort of built by foreign occupiers. So it has this very interesting colonial sort of history um, that local Shanghainese both are proud of, but also are deeply humiliated by. And so there's this really interesting psychology that takes effect among Shanghainese. They are proud of their cosmopolitan history, but they're also just deeply embarrassed by it. And they do not, uh, and I, I say this as an observer and friends of Shanghainese, they do not look kindly upon what are known as outsiders or why in, in so these are these are people inside of China that are not from Shanghai who come in to 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 work. Um, they they look down on them largely. Uh, I mean, this is a big stereotype, but I'm, I'm, it's generally true. And um, they blame a lot of problems in, in the city on them, uh, even though a lot of these people built the city. Um, but you know, Shanghainese people they have their own language. They have their own dialect. Uh, huh? Sorry? Shanghai Hua. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that they speak. And, and you know, this, this dialect is starting to die out. Much like, you know, Cantonese is also a dialect that is, uh, you know, is also sort of, you know, yeah, Guangdong Hua. Yeah, that is also, um, this is a controversial issue because uh, even in, uh, I think, television in, in Guangzhou, uh, in, in you know the capital of Guangdong Province uh, is now not uh, broadcasting in Cantonese. It's all it's all Mandarin, and that that was a big controversial issue down there. Shanghainese is also starting to die out, and 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 I think that when you see Shanghai, Shanghai is really this this city that um, you know I compare it to New York City in in, in the you know, at the turn of the twentieth century, because you have this mix of uh, not only Shanghainese, but you have this mix of expats, but also uh, Sichuanese, Hunanese, Fujianese, and they all speak different dialects of Chinese. That, and just like European immigrants to, to New York at the 20th, turn of the 20th century, these dialects are, are, these dialects are almost as different as, as German is to English, right? I mean, they're somewhat similar, but you know, they, they don't understand each other, right? Um, except in China, now you have you know, Mandarin that everyone sort of speaks. And, you know, Mandarin is now the working language in Shanghai. Uh, you know, and, and so the, you, you, you can see this changing and you can see where it's going. Yeah. You know, and so I think, I think, you know, it is on its way out. Um, and much like many, uh, you know, dialects and cultures in, in China that have sort of gone by the wayside as, you know, the standardization of the language and the standardization of culture in China, uh, largely, you know, kind of handed down on high from the Communist Party. Um, to try and you know get everyone on the same page economically, uh, this is going to go too. I think. But I think we we all know that it's a world issue, this local global, yeah. and uh, this uh, article this morning was just so pointed. I mean, this man uh, Chris Durkon, whom I know quite well, uh, is being accused of I don't know of of every crime in the book. All he's doing is saying that most of Berlin is not. German anymore. They, people are flocking there from all over Europe and all over the world, artists, creative people, because it's cheap. And so uh, to have a theatre that is uh, very rooted in German tradition that puts on plays that are seven hours long in German is really speaking now not to the mainstream but to the minority, however much they don't 
want to recognise that. So I think it's, it's um, you know, everything in China is magnified, I guess, because of the, the size of the population, but it's a, it's a world issue. Let's move on. I, I want to do justice to Jeremy. Um, Yes, I want to, uh, to talk, uh, and, you know, he puts it much more elegantly, but about the hutongs. It's all part of the same thing, development, the hutongs coming down. But in uh, May uh, two years ago, there was a show of um, part, a very small part of our collection, Brian and my collection, at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And one of the Chinese artists whose work we've collected is a woman called Lin Tianmiao. And uh, she had, some people are nodding and they know the work, and she had 270, we couldn't hang all of them, but 270 like embroidery rondelles. Some of you would have seen it at the entrance to the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I think we managed to hang about 70 of them maybe even fewer, with a word for woman, some very rude words and some very uh, sort of um, uh, gentle words, all embroidered in Chinese. And uh, she was in a way the star of that part of our collection uh, and we wanted her very badly to come to be invited by, she was invited by the Art Gallery of New South Wales to speak to her work, to speak to the notion of woman and feminism in China and so on. Anyway, she couldn't come and she said quite late, I'm so sorry, you know, I know I'm, my work is right in front of the art gallery and I would really like to be there. And we said, but why? Is somebody ill or, you know, why can't you come? And she said, because there's a big... Um, a kind of rejuvenation, she said. Not big, but a starting rejuvenation of the hutongs in China. And I am involved in the artistic um, committee or team in uh, refurbishing or reimagining the old hutongs. And I thought, God, you know, to what extent uh, is this a movement or did she just happen to get involved in the three hutongs that were being... Uh, re refurbished. Well, well, hutongs are are in Beijing. They, they call They're them in hutongs. Beijing. Yeah, uh, in, in, in in Shanghai yeah. they call them lilong, which are alleyway neighborhoods uh, where you know traditionally a lot of local life sort of happened in these yes. neighborhoods. And they in in my neighborhood in the former French concession they sort of snake uh, everywhere and they go all. You can really lose your sense of direction in these areas. And they, they kind of connect the, the main thoroughfares. And they're, they're really actually really quaint and very lovely places. Actually, a lot of foreigners uh, in Shanghai have bought up these decrepit old uh, apartments and, and, and knocked them over and basically built their own homes. These are called lane houses, and they're the, some of the nicest homes in Shanghai. Yeah, and so and, well, she's, if she's saying hutong, she's probably in Beijing. And they're, they're doing, the foreigners are doing the same thing in Beijing, as well as rich Chinese. Uh, who are rediscovering these areas and, and turning them into these, you know, really artsy, very nice, uh, traditional on the outside, but, you know, modern on the inside, I would say, uh, residences, right, that are, you know, now worth millions and millions of dollars. Um, that's happening in Shanghai, too. Um, and, you know, one of, my, one of the, the big narratives in, in, in my book has to do with this uh, Lane neighborhood named uh, Maggie Lane, uh, which when, when, my, when my wife and I moved in in two, 2010, we moved into this big apartment complex. It's, you know, these three towers. And they built, you know, 2004 or something. And uh, outside of our window and bedroom window, you could see this burnt out neighborhood that had all these old, you know, kind of Lelong area with these houses called Shrukuman houses, that gate, you know, Stonegate houses, um, that were sort of partially demolished. People lived inside of these, and I looked, and in, in the, the, the entire neighborhood is sort of surrounded by a wall, and there's like around 12 people that live there, and I thought, well, that, that's really odd. This is one of the richest neighborhoods in, in Shanghai. I don't get this. And so I went to go find out what happened, and, and that becomes one of the big stories in the book, is that um, in the process of trying to clear people out of this neighborhood, the, the government had um, started to do, resort to some pretty awful means to get people out of their homes, one of them was setting fire to people's homes when they were inside of it to try and get them out of there. Uh, and, of course, they ended up killing an elderly couple in the process of doing this to one of these homes. Actually, the elderly couple, this man in his 80s, had been a, he was a PLA war veteran. He had fought against the Americans in North Korea for China. And it became national news when this happened. 
uh, in 2005. And, um, and so the, the Shanghai government, which was preparing for the World's Fair, whose motto was better city, better life, uh, was suddenly in a PR nightmare. And their, their, their answer was to just build a wall around it. And that's what they did. They built a wall around this neighborhood and the people that had fought um, had, had basically stayed inside. Um, and so as I was looking into this interesting neighborhood and getting to know the people inside, I started thinking, well, what was on the land where I live before, you know, bef- before this building was built? And so I looked into that and I, I asked, started asking some of the older people in the neighborhood about that. And they said, oh, someone was murdered for your land too. And I found his widow, and I found his son. Uh, and the day that I met his widow, he had been burned to death by the, very, the same people that had burned the elderly, elderly couple to death uh, in, across the street in Maggie Lane. But he had been burned to death in 98. And the police blamed the, the death on the person who died. They said that he had killed himself, uh, which was, of course, not true. And so I got to know his widow. And his widow is this very interesting woman who since 98, since her, her husband died, has been on a mission to clear his name. And so she goes, she goes to Beijing uh, as much as she can. And she goes in front of Zhongnanhai, which is the seat of all power in Beijing. This is where all of the leaders of China uh, do their business, uh, right off Tiananmen Square. And she unfurls a banner. And right when she does that, of course... Soldiers tackle her. They, throw, they drag her to an underground prison in Beijing. She spends two months there getting beat up and roughed up there. And then she gets out and she goes right back to Zhongnanhai. And she does this. Her, her life is on repeat. It's incredible. And she had just gotten out of prison that morning when I met her. And when I was interviewing her, my, my first time I had met her, I asked, you know, I was afraid to ask, but, you know, she had a 10-year-old son who lost his father, you know, uh, that, that day back in 98. And I said, you know, God, what, what happened to your son? And she said, oh, well, he's finishing up his PhD at Cornell University. <laughs> and, and I thought, what? what? He's, he's, what? And he, so he's at Cornell, he's at an Ivy League university in America, finishing his PhD in economics. And he's now an exotic derivatives trader for UBS Hong in Hong Kong. It's, it's, you know, only in China today would you find a story like this that comes from such horror to, to such optimism and opportunity in the span of a lifetime like this. But you know, Rob, what I found so astonishing about that story is that the son said about his mother, well, that's what she does. Yeah. I mean, the son didn't say, Mum, will you stop this now? Well, you, you, you have to put yourself in his position. I mean, his mother, this is, this is a very serious thing for, for the mother, you know. And, and, um, and, he, and the son, you know, of course... He's obviously a very smart boy, and he—I still, you know—he's he's a man now, but 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 um, he he respects what his mother is doing. Respects it, and he would never say uh, stop doing this because he he knows that that would crush her because this is what she's living for. She she really has this dream to get uh, her husband's name cleared, even though you know it's it's absolutely impossible, most likely with this this current regime. Um, but um, it's, it's a tragic but also a hopeful case that you could only find uh, in, in 21st century China. And, um, and, you know, he was one of my most inspiring characters. I mean, I, when, when I found that story out and I got to know him, uh, I just, you know, he blew me away. He was just, Son. oh, incredible, yes. incredibly intelligent. You know, and he had to go to, after, after his father died, you know, the police forced his mom and him into an underground prison in Shanghai. And he wasn't able to go to school the rest of his year. Yes, I've I read that. And he, he goes back to school the next year. He misses almost a year of school. This, this kid who's like in third grade. And he comes back and he's like suddenly, he was, the, he, was the, he was the class monitor. He was a very gregarious, extroverted child. And he suddenly gets turned into this, he's totally introverted. He, he is psychologically traumatized by the death of his father. He's hitting his head against the wall on his free time. His, you know, his mother was very worried about him. But he throws himself into his studies. studies. Mm-hmm. He studies, he works hard, and uh, he becomes an economist. Unbelievable. Emily, you need to help me with time. I, I don't know. And 
and then questions. So we've got another five or ten minutes. Okay. All right. I'm going to uh, perhaps allow a little longer for questions because I sense some burning questions sure. in this audience. Yeah. But uh, I'll ask, just make sure that I've done Jeremy justice. Uh, yes, he says um, the National uh, um, Public Radio. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what Donald Trump is, uh, you know, what's his attitude to it. We don't want to get into a Trump uh, discussion here, but, I mean, th that's an American sort of venerable institution, right? Or am I wrong? I don't know much about it. I don't it. know if I would, I've never heard it being called well, venerable. venerable. But, um, okay. <laughs> but I think, I think National Public Radio is... Um, it is not the BBC, it is not the ABC. It, it is not funded in any direct way from the government. And so a lot of people believe that we are under threat because Trump wants to cut funding to what's known as a corporation for public broadcasting. PBS, which does rely a lot on that funding, actually is in danger because of this. Uh, we are also slightly in danger, but less so, I would say far less so, because our financing mechanism is actually uh, every city and town in the United States, most of them, have local public radio stations. These stations are funded mostly through member donations or corporate underwriting. And they then will buy our programming, our syndicated programming for All Things Considered and Morning Edition, which are these big shows that we have on the air. And that is how we make our money. So, you know, indirectly through member donations, corporate underwriting, and there is a small percentage of grants from the from from the government. And what about PBS? PBS is much more dependent on the Corporation for Public how Broadcasting. How does that function? What's the difference? It's complicated. It's not, you know. It, Again, it's through local public public broadcasting stations. It's it's more grassroots. Yeah, you're not. It's not like the BBC where things are just straight, you know, from the government and, and they've got a mission and that's what they do. Content. Content wise, I think that National Public Radio and the work that we do, we do not have the army of reporters, for example, as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or Reuters. So we're not going out there trying to break news. What we're trying to do is to offer some analysis and some depth to the headlines, but also to take a step back. And you know, as, as a China correspondent in, in, for NPR, my job is to tell the story of China, uh, you know, and, 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 to, and to do that by talking to individuals. Uh, radio is a very intimate medium. It is the primal way that we told stories as human beings through, through, through telling stories, literally telling stories, and that is what we're doing. And so I think that, that, that we understand that and, and we also tend to, our, our stories tend to be really focused on the individual, but always sort of zooming out and looking at uh, trends in society or political trends or economic trends. So uh, they're usually feature stories, longer sometimes. Um, I don't listen too much to the ABC or the BBC, but I would say it's probably less newsy than those. But, but it, we're still on top of things, and we have an enormous core of reporters in Washington that are covering everything that Trump is doing, uh, yeah, for better or worse. <laughs> I think we can start with questions now. Um, thank you, uh, Rob, well, so much. much. Yeah. I think we can put our hands together. Thanks a lot. can highly recommend the book to you. We would have loved to have had the book on sale, but I got my copy, which I only realized recently we had to order it from overseas. Oh, no. It's not available. I, it is. It is. They're selling it down at the Sydney Writers Festival. Are I know they? That. They must be running low. I think. I think. Well, yeah. they're actually in between printings. I think they're going to the third or fourth third printing or, fourth or something. Printing. So, so there's a. I think, but I believe that uh, they've got. They've got several copies of the City Writers Festival right now. There. So, well, so if, 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 you're, if you're quick if you're enough, motivated, I mean, uh, we've got an order list, Rebecca, at the bar. Oh, the bar. thank you. Thanks and a lot. so, whoever, yeah. there's a question over there. Whoever wants to order, we'll order for you, and you can pick it up here. Uh, go on. <laughs> uh, hi. Um, my parents were married in Shanghai in a Russian cathedral or church in the mid-30s. 
I've heard that since then it was converted to a nightclub and then the Chinese got a bit embarrassed about it and changed it to an art gallery. Do you know anything about that no, place? No, but that, uh, you know, give, that, uh, that evolution is not surprising at all uh, for someone who lives in Shanghai. Yeah. I'll give you the details and maybe you can... Uh, uh, that's a homework that's assignment totally or something. Fast. Oh, wow. So wait, so, so it's become a stock exchange after it's, oh, yeah, perfect. Well, that, that's, that's, that's the god now in China, isn't it? Yeah, no, so yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Come on, guys. Any, there's a, use the microphone. This is all podcasted, so unless you use the microphone, it goes wrong. Okay. Just to, to uh, follow through what you're talking yeah. about, that incredible story about the, your high-rise, the apartment yeah, building yeah. where you live, and the fact that Shanghai has been completely... Um, well, what it was isn't what it is now. It's right. been completely turned into almost massive high-rise everywhere. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you think corruption has really driven that the growth of um, the building industry, if you like? Or oh, it's fueled it. Oh, it's 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 the Can gas that makes that? the engine roar. I mean, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the transformation of Shanghai uh, was 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 basically fueled by by in large part by corruption. Um, but it's just the way of doing business at that time in place. Uh, really, I mean, a lot of this has been uh, now cleaned up, I would say. But at that time, um, uh, you would have the situation where, and it was always the same, local government uh, needs revenue. What do they do? They team up with a developer. They uh, persuade people to leave an entire neighborhood, uh, giving them the minimal amount of money and maybe some you know, consolation apartments on the uh, very outskirts of the city. Uh, for the, the, the people that hold out, uh, you force them out in some way. Hopefully you don't kill anybody, but you know, if you do, then you have to deal with that. Uh, raise the neighborhood, sell, then, then auction it off to the highest bidder, it's usually to big developer. Um, pocket the money or use the money to, to, to run uh, the district uh, that you've been in charge of running. And then in many ways, uh, when you look at local governments in China, they're always blamed uh, for the worst problems in China, you, you talk to I, I, I interview you know people in rural China, people in urban China. You know local gov local government officials are like the the devil. However, to their defense, um, the the central government takes a lot of their money and doesn't leave them with much to run a city or a district or a town. And so they really are forced to do some of these things that they do. It's a reality of life. And up until about three or four years ago, this has been how things have happened. 40 million people have had their land illegally seized from them in China. 40 million. You know, that's 40 million dissidents right there that uh, do not have a very uh, happy outlook about uh, their government and, and especially their local government. Um, Rob, I was just wondering about the, the people that didn't want to have their story published. Yeah. Um, is it because of the consequences, um, uh, homosexuality, whatever, within their status in their neighbourhood or repercussions from authorities or what, was, what were the issues? Each person had their own reason. It was, they were all individual reasons that, um, that, that they used, um, but you know, a lot of it was after, you know, sort of consulting with family members. They didn't think it was a very good idea. You know, in fact, you know, the, the, the characters that I did focus on, um, you know, they were very accessible to me. And, and, um, and I understood the, the power that I had, you know, in, you know, in telling their story and being as empathetic as I could to them. You know, there were a lot of details about each character that I did not publish because I wanted to protect them in some way. Auntie Fu and Uncle Fung is not their real name. Um, they did not ask for that. I, I made that decision because Auntie Fu was involved in a lot of illegal schemes that I thought might get her in trouble if it were published in Chinese. 
And so I changed their names unilaterally. I actually asked them at one point because I was I was sort of uncertain, and they they said no problem, just use the name. But I don't really think they understood uh, what publishing a book meant. You know, they didn't have the education level for that. And so I decided, you know, I think I better err on the side of caution and not use their names. Um, there's a, another story that we didn't talk about today about this shoebox full of letters that I, I, I stumble upon. Uh, and it, it opens up this, this really interesting history of this old couple um, that lived many years ago in the 1950s who were separated because of a lot of the Mao campaigns. Um, and I found uh, their, their youngest son. Uh, he was actually in New York City. And he asked me not to use their real names as well uh, because obviously they had had a lot of political problems in the past. And so, uh, you know, I, I state that in the book too. Uh, Rob, my question's not directly related to your wonderful book, but again about Shanghai and uh, uh, following on from your discussion of the hukou system. Some years ago, I had a conversation with the director of Grass Stage Theatre Company in Shanghai. They were making a film, a documentary at that stage about the, the sent down youth who'd returned to Shanghai as you know, middle-aged to elderly people and were demonstrating outside the city government, facing all sorts of repercussions, trying to get compensation. Yeah. And uh, sometimes I suspect I've witnessed gatherings of those people in Fuxing Park. Can you tell us what's happened since then um, uh, with, with that whole generation of people who'd lost their education and their chances in life? Those demonstrations are sort of interesting. I, I'm not as familiar with those demonstrations, so I don't really know that much about them. All I, I do, what I do know is they're fighting for local hukou in Shanghai because they they uh, were then given hukou where they were sent down. Uh, Auntie Fu and Uncle Fung were actually part of these folks, and uh, I actually I could be mistaken, but I believe Auntie Fu actually probably went to those. But she probably went there to sort of sell her pyramid scheme stuff to people. I don't know. Like she's she's kind of entrepreneurial that way. Uh, but uh, but yeah. They, but yeah. They, I think they gather every. I think it's like every Wednesday or something in front of the government building and have this sort of protest. And I don't know if it's still going on or not. Actually, um, but yeah. That's a that was a big issue. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't been following that issue as closely as I probably should. Yeah.